Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday the 23rd of the 4th. Michael, how have you been since we last spoke on Wednesday? Today's a good day. Well, tomorrow's going to be 19 degrees according to the weather forecast, so I'm very excited about that. Okay, well, today is a good day for different reasons. Why is today a good day for different reasons? Because today, Michael, is the day when the statistics will be released showing that on Wednesday... We hit our target for COVID nineteen vaccinations. Oh yes, for that's the yes, guys. I had forgotten. So we have hit the number for March. Yes, we have hit the number from. Well, we almost certainly will, unless Wednesday went terribly. So that would mean on the twenty first of April, we hit the vaccination target we had set ourselves for the thirty first of March, which would be exactly three weeks late. Now there is a bit of a downside to this, Michael. Although I'm hesitant to bring it up now given that this is a day of celebration downside seems unlikely well you see michael the fact that we've hit the target for march nine days before the end of april yes the april target isn't looking great how so explain you lose me guy we've just hit the march target so okay it was a little late but we're ramping up we're building up uh we're speed all the time we're rolling it out we have testing centres all over the gaff. Uh, it's really exciting. So I think we could probably... Let's see, it's 21st. So that gives... Um, there's 30 days in April. 22nd to 30. That's nine days. If we did maybe... Would we do 50,000 a day? That would be 450,000. Would that be enough? Depends how you cut it. I don't know your, your drug lingo now, Gary. You young people cutting isn't it well we're current we're currently doing twenty thousand a day yes which over nine days michael is not going to be enough to hit that april target what is the april target let's get that out of the way well that's that kind of unclear actually see they got during march when they had to keep changing the actual target they got slightly scared of um giving numbers total numbers mm-hmm. so what we have is we have two targets we have for june 80 percent of adults should be uh, vaccinated. No, 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 Gary. You see, you've fallen into the trap. You haven't been listening carefully enough. That was what it was. No, I mean, you see, now, by the end of June, 80% of all adults will have been offered at least one dose of a vaccine. <laughs> You're right. That is a very important distinction. <laughs> this, is, this, is a, this is a distinction to be making. I mean, it also looks like we're not going to hit that target anyway, so that's, yeah. We're going to be talking about Leo later on when we get onto that. Remind me of that. Hitting targets, because that was a good one. So they had said we would do 250,000 vaccinations a week in April. There hasn't been a week we've hit that. There hasn't been a week we've come close to that. No, this is true. On the average week, we've kind of hit half that but you know on the other side michael we'll have one day of celebration in uh april which will be when we hit the march targets and then sometime presumably in may or early june we'll have another one for the april target that's effectively an alternate uh, calendar system which i think is innovative we shouldn't be too obsessed purely with a quantitative approach to this carry there's the qualitative approach as well it's not it's not simply how many people get vaccinated, Gary. It's also who gets vaccinated. And since I was vaccinated on Wednesday, I think that that's very important. And that's a real quality vaccination happening. You know, there could be thousands of people out there getting vaccinated. But frankly, you know, 
vaccinated, unvaccinated, who'd miss them, you know? The fact that I'm vaccinated, I think, adds a, adds a real quality, a depth to the vaccinations that just the numbers don't tell the story. You have to take a qualitative as well as a quantitative approach. I mean, you're absolutely right that just the numbers don't tell the story, but that's very clearly because the HSC has decided the numbers shouldn't tell the story. But not these numbers anyway. <laughs> you want to get some different numbers. I remember many years ago being at a count in Wexford. It was 2002 and Brendan Howland arrived in. And Brendan was well used to, you know, maybe not getting in on the first count, but he, he always had a very, very solid vote and still does down in Wexford Town. It's the great Labour bastion uh, of probably Ireland, the most safest Labour seat in the country. Anyway, th- that particular year, the numbers weren't great, Gary, and he arrived in a little bit later than everybody else. And he walked with a degree of confidence, Brendan. Uh, uh, he's not a tall man like myself. He had the, the coat draped on the shoulders, a bit like the Don. And this late young woman came and handed him first tally count. And he looked at it, Gary, with disdain like I had rarely seen. And he gave it back to it, threw it back. And you could almost see him take these numbers away and bring me different, bring me better numbers. And I I, I was listening to an account from a person representing, I, said, yeah, the, I think it was the HSE or talking recently on the radio and I thought this is this is a man who has decided these numbers are not the numbers I like we're different we're going to be using different numbers everything that everything that was being proposed no no that's not the important number don't you love it Gary when politicians say that or commented see that's not the important question that's not the important you might think it is that's not the important number the number isn't what we're doing now the numbers what we're going to be doing in October. In October, we're going to be doing fantastic numbers. And I'm sure we will be. Mm. <laughs> on the uh, on the vaccines and fantastic numbers, were you saying you'd heard Naomi O'Leary, the Irish Times correspondent? It was reported that Naomi was on the Morning Ireland there this morning and that she said that we are now bang on, bang on the EU average. Now, it's kind of sad, isn't it? When it's a bit like having a kid in school and you're said how so how's little johnny doing oh he's bang on average he's getting c pluses to b minuses every, almost every week it's not like the you, you love the kid just the same but it's not exactly glowing is it but name was very proud very proud apparently bang on eu average as reported but gary are we bang on eu average short term no. Long term? No. <laughs> so, okay. Not long term or short. You set, you, you, you've set that up like there was a choice, the answer to which the answer would be yes. There's several months in there. And if you were to cut the data very specifically and only <laughs> okay. look a very select date range, I'm sure there are points in there where we did hit the European average. And, you know, there, there were points where we were actually ahead of the European average. It's just when you look at the entire thing or the last couple of weeks, they paint... You know, perhaps, Michael, these are some of those bad numbers we were talking about. But other numbers in the middle were better. Yes. There were times where we, I remember it, where we were up there in the top three or four, weren't we? For around a week and a... Well, not maybe a week and a half. Maybe a week. Yes, it was loudly trumpeted and then we just stopped talking about it. Yeah, that should have told us something when we stopped talking about it. Yeah. Actually, I saw uh, one of the other European correspondents, one of the Irish European correspondents, saying that we had brought legal action against AstraZeneca, based primarily on Stephen Donnelly telling the doll we had... Uh... Yeah, I just wanted to, to quote something to you, Michael. Yes? The Commission and each of the participating member states, each within their respective competencies, on behalf of itself, waive and release any claim against AstraZeneca arising out of or relating to 
delays in delivery of the vaccine under this agreement. Now, that legal action we're meant to be bringing is about delays. Would you like to know where their quote is from, Michael? You see, you're being now, Gary, in legal terms. You've been a smart arse. You're quoting from the contract that we signed, we, the uh, people of the European Union, signed with AstraZeneca. And you're making this smart arse point that we actually waive our rights to any legal recourse if there was a problem with delivery. But that's just your legal nitty gritty fine points. You know, that's that's your constitutional niceties all over again. So for those who wonder where that quote is from, it's from section 15.1e of the actual contract the EU signed with AstraZeneca. It was released by one of the Italian investigative uh, programs and it's up on the Gripped website now because we just took it from them and gave them credit for it. So it's all perfectly fine. I'll put a link in the bottom of this if you want to look at it. It's totally unredacted. Everything is there. I don't think anyone in Ireland actually even mentioned the contract had been uh, leaked in full other than us. But yeah, this contract explicitly says that we will not do the thing we are now talking about bringing legal action for. Now, Simon, uh, sorry, Stephen Donnelly stands up and says, (laughs) we are doing this. The, The EU has initiated legal action and we are involved. And then the EU Commission comes out and says, no, we haven't actually done that. Whoops a daisy. It's very difficult, I mean, in, I would imagine in Stephen's position, Michael, to note the difference between legal action has started and we're considering legal action. Although when you actually look at some of the reporting about how they're considering the legal action, some countries, Michael, like Germany and France, have concerns about the lawsuit. And what concerns would they be? I would imagine the first concern is going to be, what do we do when we get to a judge? And he says, what is this legal action about? And we say... Delay in delivery. And he'll say, you mean this thing? You specifically say you waive the right to? And we'll have to say, yes. But we really wish we hadn't signed that contract. We'll say, yes, but. And he say, but what? But it's not fair. And we... Uh... And we we don't have enough other vaccines and they didn't give us the ones. And now all the people at home are getting really pissed off with us. And and we have 24% approval ratings. And we have to do something. So come on, Judge, be a decent old sergeant. In legal terminology, Michael, and parlance, this is effectively akin to going into a court and saying, but some bigger boys made me do it. Some very big boys. Big boys who vote. You see, the Germans are different to us, Gary. That's why the, Ger- the, the approval rates are much uh, worse uh, in Germany than they are here. Even though it is also worth pointing out, the German rollout is pretty bad. Although it's getting, get, getting better, like the Italians. But the Germans actually expect their government to work halfway well. So that when it doesn't, and there are consequences, Germans get all annoyed and say, the fuck we don't we we don't expect our government to work so we don't really get that annoyed when it doesn't the other thing to to note here about this is that this plan was raised by the commission itself so there was a meeting with eu ambassadors the country's ambassadors on wednesday and the commission brought the this up this is not being pushed by the countries because the countries like what is the use of this even if you win somehow how long is that going to take you what if AstraZeneca just says, well, we don't have the vaccines? What are you going to do? And what are you going to win? You're going to win, you're going to win, what? You're going to get a financial penalty from a company that's selling you the vaccine at cost. 
and is going to be responsible, the principal pharmaceutical company responsible for rolling out the vaccine to the rest of the world. Now, the Chinese and the Russians and others will uh, be involved in in developing world and third world vaccine production. Moderna have suspended their license, so anybody who wants to produce Moderna vaccines can. Interestingly, for those people who are advocating for uh, pre-licensing and all these things, even though Moderna has suspended its licensing rights, nobody has actually gone ahead and made it anywhere. But AstraZeneca is going to be the one, particularly in in, in, co- in alliance with this, the Serum, uh, yes, the Serum Institute in India, so they're going to sue them. They're going to bankrupt the people that's going to save the world. Is that it? Is that the plan? We're going to take a billion or two billion off the company that's going to spend the next two years producing the vaccines to save the lives of the poor people in South America and, and, and Asia and Africa. That's the plan, that is. The commission, commission AstraZeneca, fucked by European Commission. People in Africa and Asia die in large numbers. European Commission disappointed at consequences, but felt strong action was needed. So there, there are actually some fantastic details about the meeting on Wednesday, Michael. That, so they, they meet with all of the countries on Wednesday, the EU Commission itself. And they say, we're going to bring this this legal case. Yeah. And the countries go, why are you going to bring this legal case? On what ground? And the Commission is unable to to give the full legal legal reasoning for such a move. Mm-hmm. Part of them says, well, it would address the company's failures to meet the delivery schedule set out in the contract. But another says it would make it mandatory for AstraZeneca to provide the doses set out in its EU contract, which are similar, but actually separate things. And then the countries go, and when are you bringing this case, given that you can't fucking explain it? And the commission goes... Friday. So Wednesday afternoon, the countries are told, on Friday, we're going to do this. We can't explain what we're doing here, but we've got a good feeling about it. Politico says that some of the countries there voiced uh, concerns about that, Michael. (laughs) Yeah, concerns. I think that the thing is, Gary, for the commission, this is personal. We cast our minds back to that fateful day when Italy... The Netherlands, Germany and France got together and, and went off and bought, bought 400 million doses of vaccines by themselves because they were worried that nobody else seemed to be doing anything. That provoked a response from the Commission which says, no, 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 don't do that. It's, I, I, I'm doing it. I'm doing it for God's sake. I mean, don't. You're always pressuring. I'll take the bins out. I will. I'll just give me a chance. So all of the Prime Ministers of the, said to their health ministers, no. No, don't do it. We're going to let the the commission do what the commission want to do. No, but they'll be useless. No, 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 no. They won't. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. So the commission takes it personally. They think that they're being blamed. <laughs> they think they're being blamed in some way for the failure of supply in Europe, for the failure of the rollout in Europe. And they got there in this, Gary, they are actually quite correct. They are, in fact, being blamed for the supply problems and the rollout problems. Now, they don't feel that that's fair. They think that actually all of this is wouldn't be happening if AstraZeneca had produced what it was going to do. And the English, we can't quite work out what the English have done, but the English have done something which is both wicked and clever and fiendish at the same time. And 
Perfidious Albion, exactly. When you shake hands with an Englishman, count your fingers. The English have done something sly. The Swedes are involved in it somehow. We don't quite know how. And the poor innocent commission, acting in good faith, rather than signing your fancy contracts with your fancy London-style corporate lawyers, you know, they relied on people to be decent, to be honest and upfront about it. And now, look, you know, just because they're nice guys. So they feel that they have to take this case to show that it actually wasn't their fault, that they did a good job, and just the other bad boys, maybe Gary, yet again, bigger boys came along and took their marbles, effectively, stole their AstraZeneca's, and didn't do what decent people should do. So, so it wasn't our fault at all. I think there's a, there's a large, not just emotional, but political investment in the idea that the, the Commission has to show that it really wasn't their fault, that it was a responsibility both of AstraZeneca and, to an extent, the Brits, and maybe the Americans too, in some other way. Where you're speaking there about the Commission being blamed for the supply issues, I would like to imagine there was a point in this meeting where one of the diplomats pulled out the contract I just quoted, Michael, quoted that exact section, and then said, but you did this. You negotiated this provision. So, yes, you're being blamed, and now you want to bring a legal case, when the contract you signed seems to have a stipulation explicitly invalidating that case. And then you wonder why people don't think you're competent. Not only did you sign this, but you forgot you signed it. Well, not exactly forgot, but I would say they would... The Commission feels that the language bears a different interpretation to the one which AstraZeneca insists is the one that the courts would take and that they have taken. They don't feel in the Commission that actually AstraZeneca have been direct and upfront and respectful of their commitments, that they should have said stuff that they didn't say and they should have informed them of things they didn't inform them of, but also that the English did something a bit perfidious and clever. We don't know what it is, but there's something going on. and We got cheated, and it's not right. Now, stop me from getting too technical with the legal language there, Gary. I will explain in more simple terms for the uh, for the listener, if you feel it's necessary. Do you mean that the, the British negotiated contract with penalties? Oh, well, you're getting into deep waters now, you see. I think the important thing about, remember, about the British was they did something sly and clever, and they cheated. And they, they involved people who had negotiated these sorts of contracts in their negotiating team. Yeah, isn't that a form of cheating, really? Expertise is really just cheating at its core, I think, yes. It, at its key, you know, when you do something which gives you an advantage over somebody else who could have done that but didn't do it, isn't using expert advice basically the same as using anabolic steroids? If, say, you're a bodybuilder, the EU could have used expert contract lawyers who worked in the area of pharmaceutical deliveries. You know, they could have done that. So your argument here is that you're the... European Commission is effectively that one person on the Tour de France who does not use steroids. They're there because they're, you know, they believe that a, a gentleman's word is his bond and a handshake agreement should be good enough for anybody. And if it isn't, what kind of world are we living in, Gary? Is it the kind of world you want your children to grow up in? I don't know. It's not the kind of children 
That's the kind of children I want my world to grow up in. But anyway, moving uh, moving on from that, we'll see if they bring a case. If they do bring a case, I don't know that much about Belgian law. So, I mean, does Belgian law work on the principle that if you sign a bad contract and it's really politically uncomfortable for you, they'll invalidate it? I don't know. But the heart of all of this nonsense is the fact that, yet again, there are problems with the AstraZeneca delivery. And we were promised, uh, what, it's 45,000 doses uh, at the end of the week, and we're getting nine. I know, Michael. It's very, it is very, uh, very negligent of AstraZeneca. The f- their failure to supply this country with all of its promised doses is massively slowing down our ability to ban its administration to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if they, had, if they had done what had been demanded of them, by now they'd probably be banned over the entire EU. And uh, yeah. given that, I think it's, it's, it's just wholesale negligence that they haven't allowed that to happen. But still, in fairness, Gary, in fairness, we have taken the opportunity, since we don't have that many AstraZeneca doses... Uh, we have looked around, and we have, I think, six hundred thousand is it Johnson and Johnson doses heading our way, and that's a f- that's a far more substantial number. So we've taken the opportunity to say we we will instead of not using the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is only nine thousand, we're going to not use the Johnson and Johnson one. Yes. So NIAC have come out, and they're meant to come out with a ruling on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine to allow it to be administered in this country. And they came out yesterday and said, actually, it'll be next week before we get to that. Because clearly, you know, you know, haste makes waste, Michael. You wouldn't want anyone to think you were rushing. Well, there's, what's the hurry? Everybody's going, rush, rush, rush. Do you know, hey, what is the hurry? Okay, we're a little bit behind where we had hoped we would be. But, you know, I'm confident that by Christmas, uh, we could be looking at... Uh, well, maybe outdoors in pubs and indoors in uh, barbers. Actually, if we don't improve substantially over the next two weeks, we'll actually lap ourselves and we'll be more than a month behind, which will actually be quite funny. Because do you even that do you announce the June target in June or do you wait to the middle of July and do it then? It won't be that funny, Gary, you know. It won't really, while there are comic elements to it, there are some fairly dark elements to it as well. That's the best kind of humour. I don't know. I mean, listen, we, rather than just being the usual two piss-taking and just being sneery, jeery bastards all the time, I, I still would like to make the observation that we have been we have been very scathing and sneery and jeery about the likes of those countries which, for example, took the Russian vaccine. And when people suggested over here that we go to the Russians and see if we could get some of their vaccines to, to deal with some of the supply issues we have, there was, yeah, you yeah, take that. Well, I think we have to wait until the EMA approves this. We have to listen to what the EMA says. And the EMA has not yet approved for emergency use the Russian vaccine. It probably will do. I mean, the Lancet published the peer review stuff on it but they are looking at i think potential ethical breaches in the trials uh so that needs to be clarified before it can be given the go-ahead but it was all about the ema now both on astrazeneca and on johnson and johnson the ema has been pretty clear has it not that whatever risks there are attaching to either the astrazeneca or to the johnson and johnson vaccine uh the risks are very low the incidences are very rare 
and in the case of clotting occurring because of a problem of low platelets, they have now a there is now a treatment available for people who have who develop clots, and that there is a much 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 higher risk of developing these same clots. For example, along with other things, if you get COVID. However, in this case, we're not taking the EMA's direction on this one. Are the FDA's? Or we should, we're not taking the advice of the HSE's chief clinical officer, who has said that he thinks the Johnson & Johnson vaccine should be given the green light for use. Yes, but those are all people of low quality and morals. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure the chief clinical officer of the HSE is a man of impeccable morals and the very highest quality. Well, you say that, but why will his own organisation not listen to him then, Michael? What do they know that we don't? Anything could have happened. They may know the capital of Berlin. I don't know. Many, many things I'm sure they know. Anyway, we are waiting till next week. I did enjoy the um, when we had the EMA was, you know, that is the high bar. We need everything to go through the EMA. And then the EMA starts saying things like, actually, no, when you, when you actually sit down and examine it, it's still massively more beneficial to take the vaccine, at which point we started going... Yeah, but they're foreigners. They would say that, wouldn't they? <laughs> Look at them over there. <laughs> Who even has been to Brussels? It could be anywhere. Why is the EMA anyway? Why is that? Does anybody know these people? Yeah, the way they say that serial killers always have a, a, a double-barreled name, so three names. EMA, good enough for us. Did you did you know you're not allowed to die in the house in the House of Commons? Good ruling. You're not allowed to die at. Anybody who dies in the House of Commons is taken to St. Thomas's Hospital and they're declared dead there. That explains why so many people in the House of Commons seem on the cusp of death but never quite get over. Because they don't want, they don't want the trip to St. Thomas. Anyway, you were talking, Gary, about uh, targets and meeting targets and everything. There was quite a cold and brusque interview with uh, Leo Varadkar the other, yesterday talking about... If the the government is accepting the the advice of NIAC to to to, to hold off and reflect on the thing, and but he was quite he was put the question, well, what happens if we don't meet our targets? We're confident, yeah, but what happens? What's Plan B? To which he responded, well, if you don't meet your target, then you set another target. <laughs> you know, there is a relentless logic to that, but it's not much. It's not, it's not exactly what you call comforting, is it? And we've already reset our targets a number of times. I mean, just get lower and lower. It was quite a, not a terribly cold, but at least a pointed interview, probably the most pointed I've heard from, which I think proves the old adage, Michael, that it might take Irish journalists hundreds upon hundreds of days of very clear restrictions on civil liberties and the entire closing of the country, but eventually they will ask a question. That's actually not a very high bar now I, when I... Not, mass, not massively high. It may well be that Leo is engaged in cabinet responsibility, collegial responsibility. He doesn't actually believe the decision was made was correct. But I don't know. I'm speculating that because he sounded desperately uncomfortable. Because, and admittedly, it wasn't difficult. On one hand, he was saying to the other, listen, anybody who was offered a vaccine... Whatever the vaccine is, these vaccines are safe, they're very effective. Uh, you're far more likely to get negative outcomes from catching COVID than you are from these vaccines. They're very safe. And then on the other hand, the the industry said, well, you know, there's been 30 million of these vaccines in the United Kingdom. There are no, no negative outcomes there. He said, oh, well, actually, there were 20, 20, 
I think was it 27, 28 incidences of clotting and I don't know of death. So one hand he was saying, oh, well, no, hold on. We can't just let it go because there are risks. On the other hand, he's saying, but listen, you know, if you're offered one, take it. There was, a, shall we say, a kind of in, an incoherence in his position, which when it was made, when he was made to say these things out loud and beside them, beside each other, it, it, it was hard to keep, hard to keep the sense that, that they really had quite worked out what it was they wanted to say. I particularly liked the um, the approach to targets, as you said, because it was a little bit of a sort of, these are our targets. And if you don't like them, we have others. Yeah, we have some targets in the back we could show you. I think I remember, I, I said to you before, when I was a student in Rome, they used to have these um, red days when they would, when air pollution quality would be breached and certain things would happen as an automatic consequence. So you could, only cars that ended with uh, even number tar registrations could drive and there, there was no driving in the city on say on, on the Sunday and certain kinds of activities weren't allowed. Anyway, this went on for a while and of course it was causing absolute chaos. People trying to get around and people didn't know if they allowed to drive they weren't allowed and even if they did know they were doing it anyway. And then it all stopped and I thought, well, what happened? Oh gosh, did they they got the, the air pollution under control. And my, I was informed, no, not exactly. Uh, they just changed the level at which we con was considered to be acceptable levels of air pollution, which is a very good way of, if you can't solve the problem by bringing the air pollution down, just raise the level of acceptable air pollution up. And that seems to be the approach the government is taking with targets. You know, I mean, if the target wasn't achievable, then it, you know, it wasn't achievable, it wasn't a reasonable target. And even if it was reasonable, it wasn't our fault anyway. It was other people's fault. And that was then, and this is now, and let's move on. And we're doing really well, and we're rolling it out. And it's in the GPs now. Okay, the pharmacists haven't been involved yet, and other people haven't been involved yet. But we know, Gary, why? Because we are still struggling with the supply issue. Do you know what I haven't heard the last while, Michael? And it's, it's just, I've noted its absence recently. The HSE for a while was saying that 95% uh, of vaccines, within seven days of receiving them, were in people's arms, had been administered. And I remember thinking at the time, that doesn't look right from the figures I have. But they've stopped saying it at all the last while. And there is a, shall we say, suspicion, Michael, that in fact we now have a sort of vaccine lake in the country. And the issue is rapidly moving away from supply. That there may be somewhere in the region of two to three hundred thousand vaccines in the country already. And why? Why are we not? Why are we not lashing them out? Because we're bad at this. No. Well, why have? Do we know why the pharmacists haven't yet been brought into the system? No one knows. No one. At the minute, journalists are desperately trying to get the HSE to tell them its last three weeks of vaccine deliveries because they just they announced they would announce them and then didn't announce them. They'd announced them for a couple of weeks and now the theory is that the vaccine deliveries reflected badly on us, either because they were too low or they were too high. <laughs> and so they just didn't tell anyone for a couple of weeks. Uh, this is what I was saying to you before. We have, we have become... Not just us. I mean, you know, we are we, we have we have become the the Goldilocks generation of the pandemics. 
I mean, back when the Spanish flu was hitting, if you'd gone around the world and said, listen, we, we have this vaccine, very effective. Now, in one case, in 500,000, there may be, there may, you may, there may be a blood clot, maybe one in a million. We don't know. It's, or if you go to the Black Death or cholera, whatever pandemic happened to be around at the time, my suspicion is that people in 1919 in Europe or Asia, anywhere in the world, would have grabbed it with both hands. But we know we have become Goldilocks. This vaccine is too soft. This vaccine is too hard. This vaccine is too hot. This vaccine is too cold. I want a vaccine that's just right. And you actually hear conversations, and I can't, it's not that you don't understand it. I mean, if you have low plates, it's you, or if you have had historic problems with clotting or something, and you hear people saying, well, AstraZeneca, there are issues with clotting, or Johnson Johnson, you know. But now you've got people, oh, I want, I want, I, 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 I'm, I'm looking for Pfizer, I'm hoping for Pfizer, or Moderna. I want the Moderna one. Oh, there's another one coming on that's supposed to be very good. But in, in the context, just historically, you know, that's actually, a, I suppose, in a way, Gary, it's a, it's, an, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's an indicator of the extent to which the world is a much, much wealthier place and science has advanced so much that we have this choice in such a short period of time. Not that we have one vaccine, but we have so many vaccines when many of us believed that we wouldn't have any vaccine at this stage, but we'd still be waiting another six months or a year if we had one at all. So it's, it's a nice choice to have, but it is maybe indicative that sometimes choice is not always the boon that we think it is. If there was only one vaccine, do you think we would have these debates going on? Probably not, but it is what it is. It is what it is. So you want to talk uh, briefly about Mark McSherry. Well, I, I always like to talk about Mark McSherry. I think he's one of the more interesting men in the door. It was just a very small thing. We have been speculating, Gary, for some time about the fact, the odd fact, that Michal Martin has been leader of uh, Fianna Fáil for, what, getting 10 years now? And back in 2011, Fianna Fáil came in on, I can't remember the name, it's something like 17, 17.4% of the first preference vote in the teeth of a gale of the collapse of the property market, the collapse of the economy, massive debt, the Troika coming in, the European Central Bank basically, and well, we use the language that I would like to use, treating us in a way which was lacking in affection. And you thought, well, we now have a hard real world piece of data. The Fianna Fáil core vote is 17.4% because only someone who's utterly, utterly devoted to the party could vote for them today. And over the next few years, five years, ten years, people will forget the hostility will break down. Some of the softer feel of all voters will come back and they could confidently have expected, even on a poor enough day, that they would be scoring in the mid-twenties. Well, Michal launched into his strategy the D4, D2, D4, D6 strategy, and Fianna Fáil are on, in some polls, not all polls, you know, in around 11% of the vote. And we think, well, what happened to Fianna Fáil? Why has nobody basically taken him around the back of the dance hall and put two small calibre bullets in the back of his head? Fine, well, I wouldn't say finally, but Mark McSherry has come out and said that uh, he no longer, now, you should say, he has no confidence in the Taoiseach's handling of the pandemic. 
That is not to say, he didn't say, as far as I understand, he has no confidence in the Taoiseach. Now, do you know, are, are we over-parsing it there? Is that just Mark's way of saying, we have no confidence in the Taoiseach? It's, um, I mean, it would certainly read that way. It'd be hard to separate those two things. Now, Mark which has also hit out at the government's use of lockdown as the only strategy despite the WHO's advice to the contrary. Mark also, if you remember, was the man who was who both publicly and in uh, uh, in the parliamentary party meetings. And before it became a, a common thing, to be fair to him, he was saying, we should be looking, we should be talking to the Russians. We should be out there actively looking to source our own uh, supply of vaccines because this thing has just has gone tits up and we need to be doing it ourselves. And he didn't get very much support from anybody, but I think he was right. And in this case, he says he has no confidence in his handling of the crisis. Now, we, when we see, a, we see a, a line, there has been mounting speculation of a move against Mr. Martin. You, what I find surprising, Gary, is that this, seriously, we're 10 years into it. And this is, we haven't been hearing this constantly the last few years. I mean, sometimes you have leaders and parties and all you ever hear after a certain point is, oh, there's a there's a push coming, there's a coup, there's, a, there's this group and there's that group. That hasn't really been true about Martin. There's been a weird passivity within the parliamentary party. There hasn't seemed to be any individual popping his head up above the parapet or anybody either that seemed to have a great hunger or ambition to take the job from him. And maybe that's the problem, that really you can't really give energy to a movement against someone unless there is an obvious candidate there actively seeking the job. There are people who say that Jim Callaghan is the man. Is it Jim O'Callaghan? Jim O'Callaghan, isn't it? Jim Callaghan was the Labour Prime Minister after Harold Wilson in the late 70s. He's there. Michael McGrath has basically got silent, it would seem. Um, the man from May, of course, has had his own problems. Uh, the beginning of this uh, government, but are we seeing? Are we seeing the movement? You've been hearing, Gary, and I know I have. But then again, this is the kind of thing that people like to say in the doll because it gives them something to talk about. That a lot of TDs do not believe that this government will survive till see next summer. That once this pandemic is, shall we say, pretty well under control and we are exited into some kind of reasonable life, that some crisis will precipitate the fall. And it'll be Fine Gael shaping up to Sinn Féin uh, in the belief that in that kind of scenario, they'll be able to strip votes away from Fianna Fáil and other maybe soft centre-left parties when they're given the choice that they have to, they'll swing in behind Fine Gael to save the country. Maybe. Do you think there will be blood on the carpet? Maybe. Who knows at this point? They've said it so many times that, I mean, even if they have the best of intentions... They just not be able to pull it off. Also, I mean, is is this worse than any of the other times they should have gotten rid of him? Well, but worse, no. I mean, the time they should have gotten rid of him, and that's why Jim O'Gallan is always there, because he was the man that led the charge, leading the charge to take on when Enda Enda had let himself open to criticism because of things he'd said in the doll. And there was the issue with uh, the Minister for Justice at the time that they should have taken him out. He was a lame duck. He shook. Don't give Fine Gael a chance to put in a new man. Take them out then. Go to the country. And there's a general feeling now, looking back on that, I mean, that's many, many years later, 
that that would have been an opportunity for Fianna Fáil to take serious, pick up a serious amount of seats. And it would have, most of all, potentially at least, in, in this alternative history, would have forestalled the great Sinn Féin surge. The problem is you can't push history back like that, Gary. Even if you pay 5D chess, Sinn Féin have made that surge and I don't see that Fianna Fáil are going to be in a position to push that tide back anyway. I think this is all a bit too little and too late. But we'll see. I think we will leave it at that for today, Michael. We will be back on uh, Sunday. And just uh, for everybody out there, I'd like to wish happy Shakespeare's anniversary day. These were the great days. So anybody out there, today is the, the anniversary of the death of Shakespeare. I think, is it... Uh, we don't know when he was born. I think his 16th is given as his baptismal day, which is also... The, he shares a birthday with Cervantes. But today is the... Uh, uh, his the day of his anniversary. Is it also Saint George's Day? So happy if it is. It's a sort of happy national day to our English listeners. But most of all, take the opportunity. Take out your favourite Shakespearean sonnet today and have a read, or go off and read your favourite Shakespearean play. For anybody who's not into it, go on. You find it out. And uh, there's a wonderful version of Julius Caesar with uh, Marlon Brando playing Mark Antonius which is rattling goods fun, and I'd recommend it to anybody. So it's something to do while it's in lockdown. Improve yourself. Go and watch a bit of Shakespeare. Or go slay a dragon. <laughs> or slay a dragon for St. George, yeah. <laughs> bye-bye. All the best. <laughs>